0: (laughs) It sounds a little loud, too. I speak louder than Gil does. So, the theme for this evening is round two of Dependent Origination. Gil gave an overview the other morning, talking about the basic um, intention or teaching modality uh, behind the Buddha's teaching on Dependent Origination, which is basically cause and effect. When this arises, that arises. When this ceases that ceases. When this is like this, that is like that. So that, he got to give the short version. Tonight we get the blow by blow, uh, 12 link version of dependent origination. And if you want to look at your study guide on page 15, there are a number of quotes about dependent origination that I will be referring to um, through the talk. What's amazing about this teaching of dependent origination is that you can find virtually all of the Buddha's teachings contained in here in one form or another. The Four Noble Truths is basically an explication of the first two truths. How the cause of suffering, the nature of suffering and the cause of suffering. You'll see our old friends the aggregates in here Um, obviously the unfolding of karma, volitional action, cause and effect. The whole human experience is contained, can be contained or described in this wheel of dependent origination. And implicit in this as a depiction of how we suffer is also how we come to the end of suffering as we keep repeating this is the the main point, what the Buddha kept saying, that he taught suffering, and the end of suffering, and I think Gill already used uh, the quote number twenty-four. You don't need to look at it; it's so quick. One who sees dependent origination sees the Dharma. One who sees the Dharma sees dependent origination. So there's a way in which they're very interlinked. That this is a this is the Dharma. This is a, a very important teaching of the Buddha. And it's an ultimate pointer to emptiness. I mean, emptiness is starting to seem pretty full, isn't it? All of these talks and concepts and ideas. And by the time you get to 12 links, it doesn't seem that empty. But basically, it's showing us this Conditioned nature of experience, and that's what emptiness means, and we need to keep coming back to that, that emptiness doesn't mean like this bowl is empty, this bell is empty. It means condition, that things don't arise in some uh, independent, separate uh, abstraction, but they arise in this mesh, this web of causes and conditions that we, me, you, and everything in this room in the same way, is conditioned. That's the meaning of emptiness. Empty of inherent self-existence. And this teaching points directly to that. It points to this causal or conditioned nature of experience, and especially the conditioned nature of suffering, how suffering comes to be. When the Buddha... uh, came up with this as a way to understand suffering and the cause of suffering, he really realized how complex it was and didn't want to teach. And I've already used this quote in one of my earlier talks, quote 52, where he talks about the fact that being so delight in attachment, in, um, in uh, that to, to, to try to convince them of anything else is really difficult. They don't want to see that said, this is really difficult to see, the law of dependent origination, the principle of dependent origination. If I were to teach this, it would only be wearisome and troubling for me. So I might have that feeling at the end of tonight when I see the (laughs) steam coming out of your ears around dependent origination because it is complex. Don't think if this, especially if this is the first time you've heard this or fairly new, that you you're going to get it, or even that you need to get it. This is a really sophisticated um, set of teachings. And even though it's got 12 links, which is a somewhat manageable number, you'll see within each of those links, there's depths and subtleties. So it's very complex. And it's taken me years to get a sense of it. And every time I teach it or talk about it, I learn something more about it. So really don't try to grasp it in any uh, uh, set way, but just take it in and see if there's something here that's helpful for you. Because it is difficult to understand. If you look at the next quotes, one of my favorites with our dear friend Ananda, Buddha's great disciple and attendant, very kind man, it said. um, But often he didn't become fully enlightened while the Buddha was alive, so often a little bit in the position of fall guy, poor Ananda. So here's another case where, thus have I heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was living among the Kurus. Now the Kurus have a town named Kurusadama. Their venerable Ananda approached the Blessed One and on arrival, having bowed down to the Blessed One, sat to one side. As he was sitting there, he said to the Blessed One, it's amazing, Lord, it's astounding how deep this dependent co-arising is how deep its appearance, and yet to me it seems as clear as clear can be. Well, you kind of have to know the poor guy's about to have the rug pulled out from under him, just any time someone says this. The Buddha says, don't say that, Ananda, don't say that. Deep is this dependent co-arising, and deep is its appearance. It's because of not understanding and not penetrating this Dhamma, that this generation is like a tangled skein, a knotted ball of string, like matted rushes and reeds, and does not go beyond rebirth, beyond planes of deprivation, woe, and bad destinations. So it's difficult. Even Ananda didn't really get it, even when he thought he did. So let's all give ourselves a break when we contemplate this teaching. So as I said, it, it, it can seem complicated. It is complicated, let's face it. but. The thrust of it is this cause and effect. When this arises, that arises. When that ceases, this ceases. When this is like that, that is like this. But it's another example, I mentioned this earlier, of the skillful pedagogy of the Buddha of helping us to deconstruct experience. Remember I said when something is, is solid, we can't have a way in. We can't really begin to understand it, to know it intimately. It just presents this solid facade. But you turn it around this way and see the the individual uh, components, and then it's possible to get to understand each one, have a relationship. There's a way in, and the 12 links are a lot like that. There's a huge amount one could say at this. I teach this at dedicated practitioners program where we have a three and a half hour set. Actually we have two three and a half hour sessions (laughs) on it. People give, I give day longs on it. Uh, People give week retreats on it. So to do it justice in an hour, this is like the Cliff's Notes version of dependent. We're gonna whiz through it. So it's gonna seem like a lot. Again, I trust the osmosis version of um, Dhamma, Dhamma learning just sit there and let it in, you know, don't try to figure it out or uh, understand everything. It's too complicated. So you, you won't get it just from one talk. It, it takes, you know, years to really penetrate. So I'm saying all that to give myself an out. If you don't understand, <laughs> not my fault. So, so, yeah, Yeah, lowering expectations, thank you. So I did prepare a handout. I've used this uh, a number of times when I've given um, this teaching because there's, um, on one side with a simple circle, there's a a way I simplify dependent origination. But let's start with the more complicated side. (laughs) This is a a line drawing of what's called a tanka. Many of you probably know these are tankas here. Uh, They're, you know, we call them Tibetan art. They're, They're not really art, they're teaching tools. And they're very serious teaching tools. And, and this is one called the Bhavachakra. Chakra tanka means the wheel of life. And usually it's very colorful. I actually meant to bring ours tonight. And I said to guy, I should bring the tanka, shouldn't I? And I forgot. So maybe tomorrow I'll bring it and you can see a full color one. But they're often very similar. It's hard to find one that will reproduce like this. So this one's not great, but it's basically okay. So what you see is a... Is a a fierce being holding this circle, and the being there is Yamataka, the Lord of Death. He's got his fangs and his uh, crown of skulls and his fierce eyes and his claws and everything. But what's interesting and I meant to look this up, because Gil said something what he's holding I always thought, you know he's holding some representation of life, you know, some depiction. He's holding a mirror. What did you say about a mirror the other day? I wrote it down and I wanted to include it in my notes. You don't remember, do you? What did Gil say? Something about practice being a mirror. And I thought, oh, I should use that independent origination. Huh? remember what Guy said about a mirror. (laughs) No, it wasn't that. It was skill and practice. Anyway, okay, lost it. So he's holding a mirror. Isn't that, you know... The mirror is just reflecting the truth of things, the way things are. At the center is uh, three animals, a rooster, a pig, and a snake. And they have each one's tail in the other's mouth. So they're just kind of locked in a circle. So what do you think the rooster, the pig, and the snake represent? Greed, hatred, and delusion. Which, which? It's actually this rooster is greed, the the pig is delusion, and the snake is aversion. I think that's unfair on pigs, personally, because I think pigs are very smart. Anyway, on the next ring is is just a depiction of beings falling down into planes of woe, hell, deprivation, and then coming up outside are, are depictions of six realms. In Buddhist cosmology, actually, our last DPP uh, Anushka, one of our teachers, did a whole PowerPoint presentation on Buddha's cosmology. It was great. She had a big slideshow and all these images. I think there's many, many more realms than this, but this sort of simplifies them into ones we can recognize. So this is the Buddhist cosmology. At at 12 o'clock are the heaven realms, Devas, if you've heard of devas, they live in the heaven realms. And it's very pleasant there. Everything is sensuous. There's nothing disagreeable. Food is beautiful. People, the devas are beautiful. It's very harmonious. You can see they're playing music. I always think this is a very Californian kind of heaven realm because they're in a hot tub there swimming away. Um, I don't know whether that's normally there in the heaven realms, but there you go. If you go further around clockwise... Um, It's another um, kind of heavenly realm, the realm of the titans or the jealous gods. And this is interesting. In this realm, they're beings with a lot of power, a lot of energy, but they're always warring. They're always trying to get something more, something better. They even try to go to war with the devas sometimes, but they're always warring with each other. You go further around the the animal realm, and that's obviously the world of all the different animals. Its characteristic is sort of delusion and ignorance. And again, I'm an animal lover. I think there are many animals that are more intelligent than a lot of human beings, if you ask, you ask me. But it's just the characteristic. They don't have the wisdom to practice or to awaken. That's their the nature and a lot of suffering in the animal realm. If you go further around the hell realm, Buddhists have hells. There's actually 33 different kinds of hot hells and cold hells and all kinds of hells, but we'll just go with the one here. It's enough. If you go a little further around, it's a really interesting kind of hell realm, the realm of the hungry ghosts, praetas. And in this realm, there are beings that have little pinprick mouths, really thin skinny necks, and big stomachs so they can never eat enough to fill their stomachs. Anyone relate to that? <laughs> never quite get it. There's always, and they're, so they're always looking. You can see they're all quite, uh, looking for stuff. If you go further around, there's us, the human realm. Um, all, you know, birth and death, an old person just living. And it said that the human realm is the ideal realm to wake up in because there's the right mixture of suffering and happiness and that there's motivation to practice. So th- this realm is considered to be the perfect realm. In the deva realms, you're too happy, too, too content. It's so beautiful. In the hell realms, it's too difficult. The, the um, animal realms, there's not the wisdom. In the hungry ghost realms, they're, they're too filled with desire and the, the uh, titans are aversion and power. This is the perfect realm. And in this image, it's not in all tankas, there's a Buddha in each image and he's giving the teaching that will help the beings in that particular realm. So it's it's meant to be you know somewhat inspiring. So you'll see images like this a lot in uh, Tibetan temples. Around the outside are the, the links of dependent origination. So this is basically a teaching tool that talk, can teachers can use to talk about the different realms and so these realms you know if you read the text the buddha was all the time talking to the devas and the brahmas and they'd come down and get teachings and argue with him or you know he'd go apparently go up and visit them it was just commonplace these days hmm, we may not be quite so uh, sanguine about visits from the deva realms but as mind states as psychological states we know all of these we can visit all of them and some of them more regularly than others. I mean, there's a way in which most of us live somewhat in heaven realms compared to the rest of the world, the luxury and the, the comfort that we have. But we know the others as well. We know what it's like to be as dull as a water buffalo or as uh, hungry as a prater uh, or tormented, tormented and suffering like in the hell realm. So we know, we know them all. So let's just start going, as I said, somewhat quickly through the links. We, Guy and I were just talking about doing a whole retreat, a week-long retreat on dependent origination and having whole talks on each link. I'm just going to give a few minutes so it'll be quick. And I, you know, I know you won't get them all. It's okay. Just big picture is important. Again, if you look over the page on the depend, on the chart on page 16, there's a, a one of the common teachings that just goes through the different links. It starts out with ignorance and the Buddha said something like, you can't find a beginning to ignorance. You know, that it's just, just there. The image is of a blind man and this kind of ignorance doesn't mean we're dumb, it's not a measure of our IQ. It means we don't know the truth of things and basically we don't know the Buddha's teachings. We don't know the Dhamma. So it means not recognizing the Four Noble Truths, not understanding dependent origination, not believing what's impermanent to be permanent, what's unsatisfactory to be satisfactory, and what's uh, believing in a solid self when there isn't one. Recognize what those are? three characteristics so not knowing the three characteristics and then there's a fourth believing the beautiful the unbeautiful to be beautiful so not even knowing what, where happiness or beauty is to be found not understanding karma all of these there's so many definitions of ignorance wrong view in the suttas. what you know wrong view just when we're holding on to opinions deluded by our views and opinions, thinking we know what's right. We talked about how perception conditions our view of the world and makes, leads us to hold on to all of these different opinions. I love this teacher, Byron Katie, many of you know her. She does a, uh, she has a book called Loving What Is and her main thrust is what she calls the work where she asks these four questions And you you come up with some statement of, you know, what I know to be true. They really hurt me, or he shouldn't have done that, or I'm too much this way. And her first question is, is that true? And you go, damn right it's true. You know, they shouldn't have said that, or they owed me this, or they didn't do that. But her second question, is it really true? And she really pushes you. Can you know, inside and out, upside and down, today and forever, that that statement is true? And there's not many people who can hold on to a view in that case. It's really skillful, and then she tells you to turn it upside down, and then who would you be without that thought?" And she kind of really challenges how we hold on to these views. We, so much of our life is acting out of ignorance, but the problem with ignorance is, we don't know it. I mean, the very challenge of it, when we're deluded, we're deluded, so we don't know we're deluded. I mean, how much of your life can you look back and go, what was I thinking to have made that decision or been friends with that person or gone on that track? I mean, when I was thinking about this talk, I think, what could I say about delusion? In my? And it's like, where would I start? You know? So I thought of this one story, you know, as I said, you could tell so many, but back in my 20s, so you make it long enough ago, hopefully you can assume that I've learned something since <laughs> since then. But uh, when I left Australia, I went to Asia. I lived in Asia for a year and a half, spent six months in India, basically studying... um, I mean, more than that, I lived for six months in McLeod Ganj near the Dalai Lama studying Buddhism meditation. But I also spent about six months in Nepal trekking. I trekked to um, Everest Base Camp pretty much on my own, just with a group of friends, you know, no porters or guides or anything. We just gathered together and made our way. It was a lot of adventure. But then my boyfriend from Australia came and joined me and he was a real gung-ho, outdoors kind of guy. So he wanted to get off the beaten track. You know, Everest, that was just too common to go. <laughs> and I trekked all the way in. It was like, you know, a six-week trek in, not just riding a plane in. Anyway, he wanted to do the Menang Muktanath Trail. At that time, the Johnson Trail was really common. You go up one side of the Annapurna Range and people, you know, hundreds of people do it every day and there's all these shops and everything. This was to go around the other side, do this big loop where you cross to 70 and a half foot thousand pass. And it had only been opened up the previous year. So there was nothing, you know, there was a few hotel, you know, hotels had been created. I don't know what, you know, we didn't know. We didn't have a guide. We didn't have a guidebook. I remember going into bookstores and kind of, because I, I was too cheap to buy the guidebook, writing out what I thought were some of the key points, which turned out to be totally useless. But anyway, off we sat. You know, we had some food. He had a one-man tent um, that he bought. There was, there was three of us, actually. We had a friend. She just had a tarpaulin to sleep under. Some of the time, we had places to stay in. I got really sick, amoebic dysentery or whatever, you know, really sick. He had to carry my pack, but we kept going. It's weeks. It take, I don't know how it took us three or four weeks to get to the base of this pass. And we got, you get to a little village and we could replenish a little. But then you had to walk another day to get to the snow level. You had to camp overnight. There was nothing there, at the snow level. So you could get up at 3 a.m., go over this pass while the snow was still hard before it started to melt and we'd heard all these stories these Japanese tourists you might see their dead bodies by the side of the trail because they didn't make it there was a guy who was living in a stone hut like a shepherd's hut because he could never quite get it together to leave in time and he was kind of going a little crazy we met him and he was kind of getting you know that bright eyed people get where, where he's there and this, this guided tour comes through, you know, with all their porters and yaks and everything. And the porters, the Nepalese, you know, who are so strong and do so much hard work for these people, they, they get changed from their flip-flops to go over the 17,500-foot paths. They get plimsolls, you know, which are little canvas shoes with some rubber. My shoes weren't waterproof. I had to put plastic bags on, my feet, on my so- over my socks so that my feet wouldn't get wet. But that's nothing all that. As we were camping that night, Clive started to get a little delirious. Just not quite, you know, he's usually very efficient. Camped. We've camped a lot together. And so I start thinking, oh, altitude sickness? Can't be. You know, he's so strong. And So, you know, I kind of get him to bed. You know, it's, you have to get up at three. Three o'clock comes. He's really out of it. So I have a choice. Do I get him up and we go over this pass because over the pass on the other side is the Johnson Trail with all these t- tourist t- trackers going up down and apple pie and hot showers. <laughs> if we have to turn around, I knew what we just came. There was nothing. It was, you know, four weeks of slogging through this really difficult terrain. So what do I do? I get him up and I push him over that pass. I mean, I push him, I lead him, I push him. We pass, the porters are falling by the wayside. You know, they're not even making it over. And I push this guy. I have a photo of a standing at the, t- at the top. He's sort of like this. I mean, it's delusion, right? Well, every, you know, I didn't know much about altitude sickness, but I did know the, the cure is, you go down. And it was like, when I think back now, it's like, what was I thinking? Apple pie and hot showers. You're going over, you know? And it was all of that, you know, four weeks of slogging up. I'd been sick, you know, we were all rail thin. I was like, you're... Luckily, well, luckily l- later on, he wanted to do this other trek in Pakistan, and he got really sick, and there I saved him. You know, he got viral meningitis, and I can sort of pay back a little of that that I over the past. But we do these, we make these just, you know, the mind just doesn't take in the information. It doesn't align with reality. It wants what it wants, so it, it just doesn't pay attention to this. I just, luckily he survived, the poor guy. This is delusion, and it's why it's at the start. It leads us into all of these ideas and formations about life and ourselves and existence. So delusion, I'm sure you all have your own stories about that. Next on the list is Sankara's volitional formations. So our old friends from the aggregates, at least we know this a little, right? It's the contents of our mind, um, especially volitional contents. What's not volitional? That's a good question. Hardly anything, you know, it, it... even though the f- thoughts can seem like they're random, they're conditioned. They're coming out of our experience and our tendencies, our personalities. So all of, all of the memories and conditioning and everything. This is the realm of volitional formations. And the image is a potter. Great image. Taking a, a, a lump of clay and making it into something. This is how we kind of make our personalities, you could say, through this Um, volitional formations. In Dependent Origination, volitional formations includes body, speech, and mind. In the aggregates, it's pretty much mainly mind, I think. But here, it's definitely body, speech, and mind. So it's a whole realm of karma, too. So that's why it gets complicated. That in and of itself is a really complicated link. Then we come to an interesting little section. The next one is consciousness. And this is, again, our old friend from the five aggregates. I got a lot of notes from people about consciousness. I'm not going to answer them. It's too complicated to write in a note. Hopefully what Guy said yesterday, he talked more about consciousness. Just to say again, it's just the simple knowing. Um, I was at a DPP retreat a while ago with Tanisaro Bhikkhu, who I've Mentioned one of the great scholars, very well read and practiced, and he, I forget what he was teaching. But I asked the question: Tanjev, as you call him, Tanjev, can you tell me the difference between vijnana, chitta, and mano? And these are three words that are different kinds of mind. And Tanjeff, who you know knows everything, said, "I really hoped you wouldn't answer that question." <laughs> Because it's complicated. You know, as soon as we get into the realm of the mind, even neuroscientists don't really understand how the mind literally works. I mean, they know neurons and synapses and firing and everything, but that we create this world through our mind is mysterious. So don't try and figure it out. Consciousness is just the knowing at the six-cent doors, just like a dog or a cat or a deer, that basic primal kind of knowing. The next one is Nama Rupa. This is sometimes, um, some people, a leader, or make it synonymous with the five aggregates because it's very similar. Nama means name or mentality, Rupa means form, if you remember from the five aggregates. So it's name and form. And it's, so it's got the Rupa section and then some mental characteristics, some of which overlap with the five aggregates, but it's a little bit of a different list. Um, And the image is two people in a boat. It's kind of Nama, Rupa go together, two people in a boat. Um, The mentality part are things like feeling, perception, intention, contact, and attention. And so it repeats some of the things that are earlier or later in the chain. It's a little bit of a mysterious grouping here. People often struggle over this. What I'm coming to see is that Nama Rupa, especially here independent origination, because in it is uh, contact, attention, intention, feeling, which is further down. We've got contact as a whole separate link. Why is it here earlier? What I see it doing, it's the kind of orienting that leads us to pick out what then rises to the... um, What's rises to the level of a contact happening that we really respond to. It's like the little antenna, the radar that are out in our environment. And contacts are happening. As we said, perception is a universal mental factor, happening all the time. And little contacts happening all the time. But then one arises that we go glum. And we'll get to that a little later. But it's, so it's kind of the orienting. So we've got consciousness is that bare knowing. The nama rupa is orienting. That, and then the six-sense spaces. Again, we've talked about this, eye, ear, nose, da, da 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 This is what consciousness is operating on, the, you know, ear consciousness, eye consciousness. So this is a little grouping of things. Um, and the image usually is a house with six openings, maybe five windows and a door. So we've talked quite a bit about the six-sense spaces. So there's this little grouping that basically is the human experience. We've got all this mental and physical stuff going on, and then there's contact. Something happens. Um, In the image, it's a man and a woman embracing, or two people embracing, who knows who they are. so it's meant to be intense. The, you know, the kind of contact is intense. Something happens at one of the 6 sense stores or perhaps many of the 6 sense stores. The next in, it, in the link is feeling tone, vedna. Again, one of the aggregates. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. The image for this is really interesting. Can anyone see what that is or know what that is? It's different in different... Tankas, this one is particularly striking. Someone with an arrow in their eye. So, whoever did this is wanting to say, pay attention to this. This is important. You know, that's pretty, pretty grim, pretty graphic. <laughs> that's how important contact, I mean, uh, Vedna is. Why is it important? Because... If some, We did this the other day, but, you know, this is the, how we remember. When something's pleasant, what happens? Craving. Craving. When something's unpleasant, push aversion push away. When something's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, space out. space out delusion. And as someone said the other day, here we're talking about when there's delusion at the start. So... Neither pleasant nor unpleasant does lead to some kind of spacing out, or as I said, it can lead us to just look for the next thing to crave. There's a real wisdom sometimes in neutral, so need to remember that. But this is a depiction of suffering, so it has that that um, that thing, that that kind of vibe. So it leads to crave. The shorthand is craving for all three of them. Basically, you craved something. Even in pushing away, we crave that it goes away. Or if it's delusion, you know, we're we're lost. Craving is a shorthand for for delusion or for ignorance. It's kind of assumed in that. So the image, uh, the the Pali word is tanha, which literally means thirst. And thirst is kind of a neutral thing. You know, you're thirsty, you need to drink water. But it's inherent in this unquenchable thirst. And so the image is someone pouring someone a drink, cup of tea, so it's thirst. Then what happens is things start to happen really quickly around this section of the links, Um, from craving is clinging, and it's just more strengthening of that movement of grasping. So craving is kind of out there. You know, craving, I want, I want. Clinging, I have it. So then we start to cling. What happens when we start to cling to something? Huh? Yeah, we start, it's so, it's craving, clinging, mine. Me, my striker. I'm still not gonna give it back to Gil. It's my striker. So it's clinging, and it just happens so quickly we sometimes don't even know that it's happened. The image here on the depiction is someone picking fruit. Often, actually, it's uh, the monkey from consciousness picking fruit. And sometimes even in the house that's Nama Rupa, the monkey is peering out from one of the windows. It just repeated, "So interesting that, you know they have that image of monkey mind even back then. So these things happen very quickly. So from clinging to becoming, the image, uh, here is a couple making love, like the, you know, the very origins of all of the becomings. Sometimes it's a pregnant woman. It's just a strengthening of the sense of self. You know, from I cling to it, then it's mine. As soon as it's mine, there's I, me, and mine, and all of the ahamkara, mamkara, eyeing and mying. So becoming, and then birth. Birth and the images of a, a woman giving birth. And then we've really solidified as a person, whoever I am, a good person, a bad person, a fearful person, a happy person, a mother, a father, a daughter, a sister, a brother, you know, a manager, a yogi, a, a good meditator, a bad meditator. This can happen over long periods or can happen really quickly. Once we take birth, then all of the m- machinations of protection start to come. As soon as we identify, then there's separation, right? Because it's mine and it's me and then there's you and I have to protect and all this, all this is mine and I need to get more of it and the only way happiness is to protect all of this. As soon as there's birth... What goes with birth? I mean, maybe there's a little space in between, but inevitably, death, right? If there's birth, there's death. This is what the Buddha said again and again. Take birth, there's death. Sor- old age, sickness, death. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, despair. This is where it goes. And so the image is of, um, it's a very traditional image of someone carrying a corpse to a burning gut. If we haven't picked up any wisdom in that cycle, what happens? Merry go round, round we go again. It's just, there's no break. It's just, just um, keeps on going. Now, traditionally there are, um, the views of dependent origination are over three lifetimes. If the Buddha talked about it, if you look again on the, uh, the simple side, the first two links of the previous life the next, I think it's seven links or so, this life leading to birth in the next life. And it's just like that repetition of rebirth. And there's, you know, if, if that worldview speaks to you, it's very powerful, it's motivating. Um, you know, the actions that we've done in the past have affected this life. What we do in this life affects our next life. And until full enlightenment, we're going to keep coming back. But as practitioners, I think... Um, the moment-to-moment model is much more helpful, which is just to see that these cycles are going on over and over again on all different kind of time spans. It could be a lifetime, you know, birth in this life, over one life. It could be over years. It could be over months. It could be over days. It could be in the blink of an eye. Um, And what you need to to see is this... the depiction of a circle is not that accurate. It's helpful as a, as a teaching tool. If you look at the sutra, it's just a list saying when this is like this, this is like that, and these things lead to each other. Tanasara Bhikkhu has a great article on um, dependent origination, and he, he really doesn't like the circle. I just think it's helpful to depict it. But he said there's the, it, it, it doesn't do it justice to the complexity of all the feedback loops and the different time frames within, within which things are happening. It's much more like fractals and, and um, chaos systems. And, and what's the, there's another theory that he talks about that um, you know, that kind of thing. You've really got to see, it's not like a clock ticking, tick, tick, tick. Some of these things are happening together, simultaneously. Some of them persist, like ignorance, volitional formations. They don't just go tick and then gone, tick and then gone. They're continuing all the way around, summarized together. Some happen like a stack of dominoes. So there's all these different time frames happening. We really need to, to understand that. And I also think... Um, there are clumps of things happening. So on the inner cycle, uh, oh, and the other thing that's important, that these links, even though it, it can be viewed as causal, more importantly, they're conditioning. So as Paiuto, there's a, a text here, I referenced it on the sheet, says, you can think of it like, when ignorance is like this, volitional formations are like that. So. Ignorance doesn't ca- necessarily cause volitional formations to arise, can do, but they can be going along happily side by side. And certainly the next few links don't necessarily cause each other. Sometimes they do, but they condition each other. So they influence. And what, what the difference is causing, causing is causing something to come into being. So when this arises... That arises, so that's causing conditioning. They're both in existence, but how one is influences the other. And the image or analogy that I came up with it was like a light switch with a dimmer on it. So you turn the light, you have to turn the light switch on. The light will come on. That's causal. The dimmer is conditioning. The di- the light is on. If you if the light's off and you move that dimmer switch up and down, nothing's going to happen. You can do it all day long the light switches on and then the light will go brighter or dimmer. So that's conditioning. And so many of these are actually more conditioning rather than causal. So what I, the way I like to simplify this is that there are clumps of things happening. And so the inner circle of this circle is how I abbreviate dependent origination. So... Past causes are ignorance and volitional formations. As I said, can't find a beginning to ignorance. You know, until we're enlightened, some degree of ignorance is gonna be present and hopefully it's getting less and less, but it's still there. So it's influencing and shaping our mental, physical formations, our ideas, our perceptions, how we relate to the world, our conditioning, our personality. But they've happened, you know, they, they continue happening, of course, but what I'm talking about is that's happened and here we are in this moment. The next three links all basically come together. I think Guy used the image, the Buddha often talked about two sheaves of wheat, consciousness and nama rupa, like two sheaves of wheat. You take one away, the other falls down. So they're kind of arising together and basically it's just saying it's a human being. I've got a body. I've got consciousness, I have got the six sense doors happening, and I'm paying attention. I'm awake, I'm alert. I don't know how much dependent origination happens when we sleep, you know, maybe in dreams, but it's a saying, this nama rupa is I'm paying attention. I'm looking, you know, I'm engaged with my world. So those three things, you could just say, that's just being a human. You don't need to understand what nama rupa is. You're, you're awake, you're alert. Things are happening. And then something, an event happens that's strong enough for us to connect with it. It impacts us. We pay attention to it. Of all the different things, you know, in this room, so much in this room, but something happens that's strong enough that we notice it and there's a feeling tone associated with it. So now it gets more volitional. Previously, so ignorance, volitional formations, I said, can't change. We can, how we respond in this moment can affect. We can't change what's brought us to this moment. We're awake, we're alert, something happens. Feeling tone. Even though it's conditioned, we can't in the moment change how it seems to us. With mindfulness, we can work with it, bring more equanimity. But in the moment of something arising, it has its feeling tone. It's inherent in the experience. It's not the experience. As I said, it's conditioned. So what's pleasant for me could be unpleasant for you. But in the moment, it has what it has. So now it's more volitional. This is where, and traditionally, this is where it's said we can break the chain between feeling and craving. If we can just recognize, oh, this is pleasant. Well, this is unpleasant. Well, this is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It's said that the the whole rest of the wheel can just fall away. So once once we get to craving, it's really hard, really hard not to cling. It's really rare to have a craving and then go, you know, no. I'm not. It happens, doesn't it? You, I mean, you probably all had that, like reaching for the third cookie, and you're like, no. So that's an example. If you've gotten to crave, you've gone past contact feeling craving. You've even had two, so you're doing pretty good. But you, you're like the third one, no. You break the cycle right there. But often these that that next section, the response happens so quickly that it's a blink of an eye, and we're right there, born as the person who ate too many cookies or who, you know, said what they shouldn't have said or whatever it is. So it's said that that's the main place. But I don't think it's the only place. I think wherever we bring attention to, we have the possibility of breaking the chain. Even if we've gone all the way around into birth and suffering, as we've said repeatedly, suffering is a doorway. If we can learn from that suffering, we can wake up. Christina Feldman says, to me the significance of this whole description is that if we understand the way our world is created, we also then become a conscious participant in that creation. The Thai meditation master, Buddhadasa Bhikkhu, describes this wheel, not as a wheel of suffering, but as a radiant wheel meaning implicit in it is the end of suffering. Anywhere you wake up, you can actually have a choice about this. And in some ways it's really simple, and in other ways it's really complicated. But as I said earlier, this deconstructing is sort of like the aggregate. So here's another whole list. If if the mindfulness is there, wherever, you know, it is right there at the six sense spaces, and there's a sense of what we call guarding the six sense spaces. So we're kind of paying attention to what we're taking in, what we're feeding. If we're, you know, the contact happens and we just stay with feeling tone, or we see the grasping and we feel the pain of it, and we let go. Anywhere we can actually make a shift. And so the Buddha talks about a cessation cycle, which is if there's no ignorance, there'll be no volitional formations. If there's no volitional formations, there'll be no consciousness. That's a little tricky, but that's the point, is the wiser we get, the less we'll be stuck doing this again and again, as they say, the definition of madness is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. If we're lost in doing this repetitive pattern, we will end up in suffering. But anywhere we can bring some openness to, some training to, start cultivating wholesome states of mind, metta, compassion, other things, more wisdom, more mindfulness, it can shift. As Ajahn Samedo says, if you start with a vidya, ignorance, you'll always end up with suffering. He says, I encourage you to start not from a vidya, but from awareness, vija. He's saying awareness, it could be even wisdom. Awareness, vidya, and wisdom, panya. Be that wisdom itself, rather than a person who isn't wise, trying to become wise. As long as you hold to the view that I'm not wise yet, but I hope to become wise, you'll end up with grief, sorrow, despair, and anguish. It's that direct. It's learning to trust in being the wisdom now, being awake, even though you may feel emotionally inadequate, doubtful or uncertain, frightened or terrified of it. He's so great, Semedo. Um saying... Trust the wisdom now. Whatever wisdom you have, whatever your however you're connecting with your experience, if you can see their suffering, there's a possibility of letting go. Wherever you are on that cycle, even if you've really solidified uh, as a certain identity, the wisdom comes in, whatever that identity is, whatever this emotion is, it's impermanent. It will change. If I try to cling, if I try to hold on to it, if I try to solidify it, I am going to suffer. So we begin wherever we find ourselves. And we have to trust the mindfulness and the wisdom that we have. As the surgeons made us, there's no point trusting tomorrow's wisdom or five years from now, then I'll get all this. Doesn't help us today. All of these teachings, all of these practices are just to give us the kind of support to say, I can know this. I can know what's happening right now. And it might be what I wanted. It might not be perfect. It's certainly probably not going to be perfect. But if I can know this as, as clearly and as closely as I have, I can work with it. I can practice with it, I can accept it, I can let it go, I can I can let it be, I can hold on to it if that's what I need to do. You know, if there's a role I need to take, but I'll do it with the wisdom of making a choice. Mindfulness is so much about making a choice. So, we don't have to figure it all out. We just recognize that if we hold on to identity view, to, to craving, we're gonna suffer. It's just that simple. We've said before, Ajahn Chah says there's a suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. So the paradoxical thing about Buddhism is we look to the suffering. That's where we pay attention. I love when Gil said, there's you know, all of this suffering in the world, suffering in our lives. A lot of it we can't do much about But the self-created suffering, that's where our practice is. That's where we need to look. How are we creating our suffering? Through our views and opinions, or the way we're holding on, or or our judgments, our self-doubt, our sense of unworthiness or shame. This is creating our own suffering. And we can see, we start to see how to work with that. Moment by moment, we don't need to figure it all out. We don't need to get a PhD in Buddhist studies. We just need to know this heart and mind in this moment. Start right where you are, as Pema Chodron would say. So I'll just finish with the words of the Buddha. For some people, contact the point where sense plus object meet is enthralling. And so they are washed by the tides of being, drifting along an empty, pointless road. Nowhere is there any sign of broken chains. But others come to understand their sense activity, and because they understand it, the stillness fills them with delight. They see just what contact does, and so their craving ends. They realize total calm. The calm comes from the end of grasping. So let's just sit quietly for a moment, let the words settle. Thank you for your attention. It's a little over half an hour for walking. We'll come back at nine o'clock and empty everything out with the Prajnaparamita Sutta.